This morning, I am reminded again of how brittle is the thread called life. I knew Mrs. Bill David Stewart, and I have known Brother G.H. Sinley for years. I had no idea that death was so near for both of them, and many of us here are acquainted with them, and I know we'll want to be prayerful for their families. I think they were dedicated Christians while they lived. I believe they're with the Lord now. But at any rate, it is a serious thing. People are ill, people are dying, and all need to be saved. Last March, I spoke one evening at the college church concerning our responsibility to evangelize. And I gave what I consider the two most important reasons for our being involved in this work. The first reason was the Lordship or the authority of Jesus Christ. He has commanded us to share the gospel with others. And I stated in that sermon that if the fact that He has told us to do it won't get the job done, no one or no thing will. And then the second observation made had to do with the importance of a soul. That the soul is more important than all of the world, that it is eternal. And this morning I would like to give some additional reasons for each one of us being involved in trying to lead others to the Lord Jesus Christ. I've discussed the two most important in the past, and these, as far as I am concerned, are secondary, but they are important nevertheless. I submit to you in the third place that we need to be involved in this great work to save our country from destruction. According to Genesis 15, God was speaking to Abraham, and he told him that his descendants would go into Egypt for a period of 400 years. After that, they would return and become the possessors of the promised land. And he explained that they would not get the land of Canaan until after that 400 years of bondage because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full. And that passage simply says that when the cup of Amorite iniquity was brimful, the land was to be wrested from them and given to the Hebrew nation. And there is a principle in that verse that's still applicable today. There is a point in wickedness beyond which a nation cannot go without the judging hand of God falling upon it. In Proverbs 14:34, the wise man said, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. At Psalms 9 and 17, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all nations that forget God. At Psalms 33, verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. All of these passages corroborate that first principle, namely that a nation will be blessed in proportion to its righteousness, and it will be punished in proportion to its wickedness. Sodom and Gomorrah became a stench in the nostrils of God, and so the Lord burned those two communities from the face of the earth. Archaeologically speaking, you can't even determine their location. Uh, whether the two were located on the northern end of the Dead Sea or the southern end, the archaeologists do not agree. It is my opinion that not one trace or vestige of these two communities will ever be found. I have a sneaking suspicion that when the fire and the brimstone hit the ground, it hit it with such impact that craters were carved out into the soil, and then the waters of the Dead Sea rushed in to fill those holes, and we'll never find Sodom and Gomorrah. The antediluvian world of Noah's day was filled with corruption and violence, and because of its wickedness, God determined the world was to be destroyed. I don't know how many people then lived, but at least one fellow said there were 25 million on the face of the earth, but God destroyed them all except eight. Israel was an, a nation that turned away from God. It was involved in wickedness, immorality, and ungodliness. Hosea and Amos warned these people, pleaded with them to turn back to the Lord, but they failed to give heed. As a result, they were destroyed. In 725, the Assyrian hordes swept over Assyria. 
And after a three-year siege, Samaria fell to Samaria fell to the Assyrians, and the people were carried away into captivity. Jeremiah and Michael warned the people of Judah about their sin. They also told of impending doom and destruction, but again their words went unheeded. No one listened. In 588, the Babylonians, under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar II, swept over Judah. And after 18 months, Jerusalem fell, and the people were carried away into Babylonian captivity. In the 8th and the 7th centuries B.C., Assyria was the Nazi Germany, and her Berlin was Nineveh. There were two Hebrew prophets by the name of Nahum and Zephaniah who had the audacity to speak out against the Queen of the East. Now, that was one of the most prosperous and one of the most powerful cities in all of the world. But those two men, by inspiration of the Spirit, said that Assyria would fall, that Nineveh would be destroyed. And finally, what they said came to pass. In 614, two armies came up against Nineveh, and they pounded for two years against that community and did absolutely nothing. You see, the community was surrounded by a wall that was 100 feet high and 50 feet thick. It was broad enough at the top that three chariots could run abreast. In the 1850s, a trigonometrical survey was made of that community, and allowing 50 square yards per person, 174,000 people could have lived on the inside of the walls. According to the book of Jonah, there were 120,000 there who didn't know their left hand from their right. That may be a reference to the babies. It may be a reference to the entire population. If their former view is correct, that means the ancient city of Nineveh had more than 600,000 people in it. Of course, many of them must have lived outside the walls. But in time of siege, they went on the inside. I'm simply trying to illustrate the fact that it was a great, powerful nation and a powerful city. After two years of siege, nothing happened. According to tradition, there was a little tributary of the Tigris River that flooded and it washed up against the walls of Nineveh. And that river did what the combined forces of two armies could not do. It made a breach in the wall. By that time, a third army had joined, and those three armies hurled into that breach, and they destroyed Assyria in 612. Three hundred years later, when the armies of Alexander the Great marched over the mounds of, Syria, marched over the mounds of Nineveh, he didn't even know that great city lay beneath his feet. As a matter of fact, that community lay buried under its own rubble for 2,400 years before it was found. Isaiah also spoke about Babylon, and he said that this great country was to be destroyed. As a matter of fact, he uttered that prediction before Babylon ever came to its zenith and power. But finally, in 539, the Medes and the Persians diverted the course of the river, went into Babylon, took control of the city, and later it was destroyed. And Isaiah said it would never be rebuilt. And you can go to the ruins of Babylon today. And as far as that ancient site is concerned, no community has ever been built there. It is true that one was built nearby, but not one was built on that particular site. I've seen the mounds of Nineveh. I've looked at the, the uh, tell of the Nabi Yunus, or the hill of the prophet Jonah, and the tell Kanjik, and I've seen the outline of those walls. And about all that's within the walls of Nineveh today is growing fields of grain. And I thought about how powerful that community once was and how busy it was and how its streets were filled with hawkers and traders. But now it's gone. I've been to Babylon. I've walked through what was once the mighty Ishtar Gate. I've looked upon the ruins of the North and the South Palace and the Hanging Gardens. And I thought about what a powerful city it was. But it's gone. You and I have read so many books and we've seen so many movies that ended with they lived happily together ever after that we don't think it could happen here. We think that surely America's here forever. She'll never be destroyed. She'll never be overrun. 
But I've heard Jim Woodruff state from this pulpit an opinion several times which I tend to share, and that is it may be too late for America. We may have already gone too far. We may have reached that point in wickedness beyond which a nation cannot go without being destroyed. I maintain the foundation of the Republic are shaking. The house is filled with smoke. But there are some of our folk who don't even smell the smoke, and they don't even feel the tremor. And one of the reasons we need to be involved in evangelism is in order to save this country. What was it that Sodom and Gomorrah needed? More recreation? More entertainment? More leisure time? Sodom and Gomorrah needed more salt. They needed more righteousness. If they'd had ten righteous people, those communities would have stood. What do we need in this country? More entertainment? More recreation? More leisure time? We need more salt. We need more righteousness. It's righteousness that exalts a nation. But sin is still a reproach to any people. In 1974, almost 10,200,000 criminal offenses were reported in this country. That was up 203% from 1960. It was up 38% from 1969. Violent crime in 1974 was up 47% from 1969. From 1969 to 1974, our population increase was 5%, but our crime increase was 38%. And that indicates during those years, crime increased almost eight times faster than our population. And how long must that trend continue before we become a nation of criminals? Every six seconds, there is a larceny theft. Every 10 seconds, a burglary. Every 32 seconds, a motor vehicle theft. Every 70 seconds, aggravated assault. Every 71 seconds, a robbery. Every 10 minutes, a forcible rape. Every 26 minutes, a murder. And the chances are 1 in 45 that you will be a victim of serious crime this year. In 1972, and that was four years ago, Pat Gray, who was then acting as the head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, said we were spending $36 billion annually in this country on crime. It's probably gone up by 50% since that time. But using his figures, we were spending almost $110 million a day, more than $4.5 million an hour, $740 per family annually, and about $10 on crime for every $1 being spent on churches. We lead the world in our divorce rate. A few years ago, our rate was eight times out of Mexico, six times out of Canada, three and a half times out of England, and three times out of France, and it's probably higher now. There were more than one million divorces in the United States last year. That's almost double the number since 1965. In 1971, 29% of American marriages were ending in divorce. Now it stands near 35%. According to Dr. Glick, senior demographer with the U.S. Census Bureau, the number of divorces is increasing in all age categories, but there are many more proportionately in the younger age group. This means the expression divorce granted is heard 2,740 times every day in the courts of our land. Approximately one and a quarter million children were involved in divorces last year. There are 15 million kids in this country who do not live with both parents. Our president and our vice president are both married to divorced women. Our vice president has also been divorced. One seeking the nomination for the presidency is a divorced person. And I am not trying to speak out for any political party. I am simply stating the facts. Ninety-five million Americans drink. Between nine and ten million of them are alcoholics. Almost one-third of them are women. There are several million more problem drinkers. 
40% of those in the Navy have drinking problems. One of every 24 Americans is an alcoholic. One of every 18 is either an alcoholic or a problem drinker. And one of every four Americans is directly affected by one of these alcoholics. Then there's the problem of sexual immorality. A recent poll of 100,000 women by Red Book magazine revealed that 90% of middle-class women under the age of 25 had engaged in premarital sex. A 1973 Gallup poll indicates that only 48% believe premarital sex is wrong. 43% believe it is right. 9% cannot decide. 10% of the freshman boys who enrolled at Harding in the fall of 1974 said that sexual intercourse for two people who are in love is all right outside of marriage. 750,000 women were pregnant out of wedlock in 1974, and of those, 418,000 illegitimate births were recorded. A Temple University sociologist found in a survey of 2,300 housewives that 50% felt they would eventually go outside their marriage for sexual experiences. One of every three aged 26 to 30 said they already had. There are more than 50 teenage magazines in our nation today that cater to those between the ages of 14 and 19. They feature discussions of sex, abortion, and extramarital affairs. There are between one and two million abortions in our country, country annually. We also have several million homosexuals. There are 4,000 gay bars in our land. Some old-line Protestant groups are now speaking in defense of homosexuality. And we've even reached the point where we have homosexual churches. The First Lady of our land said she would not be surprised if her daughter had an affair. I know since that time some explanations have been offered, but it's still a little difficult to know exactly where she stands. But what about our allies? What about our state old allies of England and France? Surely the moral state in those countries is better than ours. Anthony Sampson wrote a book entitled Anatomy of Britain, and one reviewer said, It is a terrifying picture of uncoordinated drift. Frightening, unquote. The average person in England goes to church three times in his life. The first time, they throw water on him. The second time, they throw rice on him. And the third time, they throw dirt on him. Only about 3% of the English population attends church services of any kind with regularity. In 1973, in all of England, they ordained only 373 men to the clergy. If you'll allow the Harding campus at Memphis to be included, we're training more young men every year than they ordained to the clergy in the entire year of 1973. A 1973 Gallup poll indicated that 70% of the people believed religion was losing its influence in British life. What about France? It's a country of empty cathedrals. Great, beautiful monuments, but no real dynamic influence on the people. A group of American citizens were on a tour, and they were being shown one of the cathedrals. The guide was telling them how much money had been spent, how long it took to erect it, who was its builder. And finally, a little countrywoman from America spoke up and said, How long has it been since anyone got saved here? And there was a hushed silence swept over the group. And finally, the guide said, uh, Well, uh, this is a cathedral. And I thought, yes, and that's the state of French religion. Cathedralized the church, monstrous buildings, enormous sums of money tied up in those lovely structures, but no real influence on the people. Practically speaking, it's atheistic. Nominally speaking, it's, it's Catholic. But what is the condition of France? 
A missionary wrote a letter to me. He said, the world is spiritually sick. And he said, France is the sickest country in all of the world. Someone might say in response to all of this, well, Jim, you know the Russians are worse than we are. Now, here's Britain, here's France, here's the United States. They represent the Western culture. They represent freedom. They represent freedom, uh, uh, religion and freedom. And someone says, well, the Russians are worse than we are. Well, are they really? You know, even if you can prove they're worse than we are, that doesn't give me any comfort. That doesn't give me any encouragement. That's the very issue in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk says to God, when are you going to punish the wickedness in Judah? And God says, well, I'm raising up the Chaldeans to do that now. And Habakkuk said, well, well, they're worse than we are. How could you use a people more wicked than we to punish us? And God said, I'm going to use Babylon to punish you, and when I finish, then I'll take care of Babylon. And that's exactly what happened. If they're worse than we are, they could still be used by God to destroy us, and then later on they could be punished by the Lord. But on the other hand, I'm not really sure they are. We have to make a distinction between the communists and the Russian people. And there are less than 15 million members of the Communist Party in all of Russia. How about the people as a people? Are they really worse than we are? Someone might say in response to this, you sound pessimistic. I am. But I think I'm realistically pessimistic. What about a fellow who had said to the ship captain of the Titanic, don't run into that iceberg, you might get hurt. Would you say that man would have been a pessimist? What about the man who warns the fellow who builds his house at the foot of a live volcano? Don't build here. The molten lava might destroy your house. Let me tell you who are the pessimists. Those who say you can go into an iceberg without being hurt are those who can say you can build your house at the foot of a live volcano and the molten lava will sweep to it, but it won't harm it. Those are the real pessimists. Jonah went to the city of Nineveh, and he said in 40 days God is going to destroy this community. From the king on the throne to the beggar in the streets, they heard him. They listened. They made a change. And they bought another 150 years of history for that community. And the only hope for our future is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which you and I have, which we can share in this community and this county, throughout our country and throughout all the world. I know God's hands are not tied to America. He might allow our country to be destroyed and then use another. But from my limited perspective, if the gospel is to be preached to the whole world, it will be done by our people. And if this is to be the launching board for mission endeavors throughout all the world, as it has been in the past, then we're going to have to be the right kind of people to maintain an existence for that work to be done. So I submit to you that a real important reason for being involved in the great work of evangelism is to save our own nation from destruction. A second one has to do with this business called the population explosion. In the first century, there were 250 million people. By 1000 A.D., it was 450 million. 1500 A.D., 545 million. 1830, 1 billion. 1930, 2 billion. 1965, 3 billion. 1976, just a few months ago, we went over the 4 billion mark. By 1985, it will be 5 billions. By 2000 A.D., if the trend continues, 6.5 to 7 billions of people, with 70% of them in Asia, Africa, and South America. Our world's population is increasing at about 70 million a year, and that's after deducting the 50 million who die annually. The rate of growth is 192,000 a day, or 8,000 an hour. 
Until recently, China has been growing at the rate of more than a million a month. That's one reason why Mao does not fear a nuclear war. He has more than 800 million people to feed into a war machine. India is adding 13 million a year since 1947, and that was only 29 years ago. Bangladesh, which used to be called East Pakistan, has grown from 35 to 78 million people. If the rate continues in another 28 years, they'll have a population of 230 million. And in land mass, it's about half the size of New Mexico. Now imagine all of those people crowded together in that little country. In the United States, we're increasing by more than 2 million a year. In 2000 A.D., we'll have 310 million people. The population increase annually in this country is two-thirds of, quote, our, unquote, membership. Just one year is two-thirds of our membership. There are now approximately 250 cities in the world that have a population of more than a half million people. Many are concerned about the physical birth rate. You and I must be concerned about the spiritual birth rate. If there are five million New Testament Christians in the world today, that means there are one and a quarter disciples for every 1,000 people. To have a congregation of five, it would be necessary for a community of 4,000 to exist. Millions have never heard a Catholic or a Protestant, much less a gospel preacher. And they've not even seen a New Testament in their own language. When Charles Chaplin returned from Tibet a few years ago, he said there were people in that country who knew his name, but who did not know the name of Jesus Christ. And that's cause for weeping on our part. If we're able to convert 100,000 people a year, and that ought to be a fairly easy task for 3 million people, we will reach one-twentieth of the annual population increase in our nation and one-seven-hundredth of the annual population increase in the world. And that doesn't say anything about the 137,000 people who die every day. doesn't even take them into consideration. If we could teach 1,000 an hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks in a year, it would take almost eight years to teach one year's population increase and 24 and a half years to teach the present population of the United States. And then, of course, we have so many more young people now living. In America, half the population is 25 or less. In some of the Latin American countries, the figures are even higher. What an opportunity with so many youngsters alive. They're turned off by the same traits of organized religion that turn you and me off. The things that we've attacked across the years are some of the things they are now saying. Teenagers are the most fertile soil for the gospel. Most are reached between the ages of 12 and 20. This is the time when youth work and bus ministries are so very important here and in missionaries elsewhere. It is literally true. We can grow a church. We could grow one if we wanted to badly enough. Thirdly, I submit to you that you and I need to be involved in this work because of the principle of self-preservation. Now, we all know that self-preservation is the first law of life, physically speaking. But I maintain that it has application, spiritually speaking, as well. Surely none of us wants to be hurt spiritually, just like none of us wants to be hurt physically. In Daniel 12, 2 and 3, the prophet said, Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many unto righteousness as the stars forever and ever. According to those verses, soul winners will have a high and exalted position in the heart and mind of God in the next life. So we want to be a part of that group. In Ezekiel 3, God Almighty warned the prophet to tell the people. And he said, if you don't tell them, I'll require their blood at your hand. 
On the other hand, if you do warn them, regardless of what they do, you will have delivered your soul. It was with that background in mind that the Apostle Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders at Miletus and said, I am pure from the blood of all men. And he then added, Because I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. He was pure from the blood of his fellows because he had shared the gospel with them. Well, the conclusion is obvious. Had he not shared the gospel, he would not have been pure of their blood. Someone has said the way to heaven is so narrow, we can't travel it alone. Two can go together, four, eight, or sixteen, or thirty-two, or sixty-four, hundred and twenty-eight, but one simply cannot travel it alone. And I believe that's right. If I go to heaven, I'll take someone with me. If I go to hell, I'll take someone with me there as well. Bud Green, whom many of you knew, had at one time in his life been an alcoholic. And I have visited Alcoholics Anonymous here in town two or three times, primarily because of the influence of Bud Green. I asked him one day, Bud, why are you so active in AA? And he made a statement I'll never forget. He said, in essence, I'm selfish about it. He said, I have to work with other alcoholics to stay sober myself. And I thought, you and I are going to have to be involved in this business of trying to save others to stay saved ourselves. We've been saved to save. We've been one to win. We've been redeemed in order to have a part in helping to redeem other people. And Bud really summed it up beautifully. I have to stay active in AA to stay off whiskey myself. And you and I are going to have to stay active in the kingdom of God and trying to point others to Jesus Christ in order to stay saved ourselves. James said to him, therefore, that knoweth to do good and doeth it not. To him is sin. As one of the elders of this congregation, I have been asked to serve as head of a local evangelism committee. And for a few minutes, I want to talk to you about that program and make some suggestions as to what you can do. Terry Williams, who is a member of this congregation, is building us some track racks, and he's going to put them out in various places in the community and see to it that those racks are supplied with tracks. If you know a place where one can go up, then I'd suggest you get in touch with him. Let us know where that thing can be put up. If you have a business and you'd be delighted to have one there, let us know about it. We hope to have one or two tracks in that rack each week and also this brochure concerning the college church. So get in touch with Terry Williams if he can help you. We hope to use some Bible correspondence courses. I assume that James Woodell is going to see after that. We're going to need some volunteers who will grade these Bible correspondence courses for us. If you'd be willing to do that, why not turn in your name to the church office sometime in the next few days? Mary Woody... A member of this congregation is using her CB radio for evangelism. She's the mother duck. And she's gotten a number of young people to attend church services here through her influence. I know she's going to want some help from some youngsters, some people who will be going to her house on specified occasions to mix and mingle with kids who will be visiting, to simply show that we are Christians, to let them know we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, she'll be working in connection with this committee. We want to supply her with written materials. Bill Searcy here on the front row is one of our college students. He's going to be working again this year in the jail ministry. I haven't spoken to Bill about this, but I think surely he'd like to have one or two men to go with him, some. Some fellows that he can show what's taking place and train them. And when Bill's gone, they can continue the work. I think it'll be hard to improve on him because he baptized likely a half dozen in his jail ministry work last spring. He understands their lingo. He knows their background. And he can do a job that some of the rest of us might have trouble with. But nevertheless, 
he likely would like to have one or two others to go along with him. We may have a daily radio program. I'm hopeful that we'll be able to approve that, that our elders will. It'll be five days a week, five minutes a day, between 11.45 and 12. If we have the radio program, I'll be doing the speaking. And I want to feature undenominational Christianity. I want to say it again, undenominational or non-sectarian Christianity. And I want to feature fundamentals or first principles on that radio program. I may have to call on some of you to help when I'm out of town. We also hope to organize four evangelistic teams in this congregation. James Woodell, who has had vast experience in this area, is going to head up those four teams. The four men under him will be Jim City, Bill Conley, Ray Dixon, and Ken Johnson. If you would be willing to work under one of these four men, we need to know about it. We hope to be able to get 12 couples to go with each man. Now, that doesn't mean 12 married people necessarily. But we hope to be able to send out people two by two. That's the way the Lord did it. We're going to have our first meeting next Wednesday night at 7 o'clock in the auditorium of this annex building. We'd like for all of you who have any interest in reclaiming backsliders and in teaching the lost the gospel to be there at that meeting. Now, hopefully one team will be at work every week each month. City's team say take the first week. Conley's team take the second week. Dixon's team take the third week. Johnson's team take the fourth week. So we have somebody active all the time. Woodell tells me that there are at least a hundred families in this community where we can go right now to teach people the Word of the Lord. Now, if you think you would be interested in that kind of work, I hope you'll be there Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, the auditorium in the Annex building. Now, if you're just a little bit doubtful, go on anyway. And then go back to next Wednesday night. Next week will be taught by, or this week will be taught by Woodell. The following week, Woodruff. And the following week will be Whitten. But if you think you'd like to work in this, then please be over there. You'll be given an opportunity to get out later on if you want to get out. Now, these four men whom I have mentioned will be team captains, and they're going to be recruiting. If there's one of those four fellows you'd like to serve with, when you arrive Wednesday night, and you know well enough, uh, you, you know this ahead of time, write it out on a slip of paper and give it to Brother Woodell that night. But here's an opportunity to get into some homes here in town to teach the Word of the Lord. Perry Smith has three male interns and one female intern, and he's going to be working with these people on our campus. And with our students, he'll also be calling on a lot of other youngsters. Jim Woodruff informs us that he's going to be using this pulpit on Sunday night to point toward evangelism. And if you've read the bulletin for this week, he has a great deal to say about it in the bulletin. Now, with tracts and Bible correspondence courses, with a jail ministry, with a radio program, with personal evangelism, with an internship program here on campus, with a pulpit, if we all get involved in this, surely in the next year we'll be able to reach several hundred people with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me state then very quickly what you can do. Number one, go to work where you are. Go to work right where you are. We can all work individually. We had a boy in school several years ago. If I were to call his name, some of you would remember him, but a lot of us considered him to be a sorehead. He may have been, but on the other hand, he may not have been. Because after he left, he wrote all of us faculty a letter and in this letter, he made a pretty serious charge. Now, I don't know whether it's true or not, but here's what he said. He said that in his non-Bible courses at Harding College, he couldn't see any religious emphasis at all. 
He said, not any. And he quoted from Jim Woodruff's sermon where Jim had said that regardless of the course taught, the kids need to be able to see the Lord Jesus Christ and they need to be able to see that we're Christians and we're dedicated to Him. Now, I don't know whether the boy's charge is right or not. I'm simply telling you what he said. But I said all that to add this. Brethren, we've got to go to work where we are. We don't have to have a personal work program for me to talk to one of my students about his soul. We don't have to have an organized program for me to say something to a kid who's careless about doing the Lord's will. There are a lot of us who can just pick up and start right where we are, and we'll reach a lot of youngsters. And we have some associates right here on Harding College campus who are not Christians. And we can start right there. Each one of us individually can take a responsibility for them. We have members of our own family who are unsaved, and we need to be talking to them about the gospel. Secondly, I urge some of us to rearrange our priorities. Now, there are hundreds of people in this audience, and I'm not trying to be catty. I'm just stating the truth. There are hundreds in this audience who go 365 days and never exert a conscious effort to try to save anybody. Now, we've just got to rearrange our priorities. I know a man in this congregation who can't possibly fit into this program. He's tied up every week, six nights, in doing the work of the Lord already. There's no way in the world I can ask him to help us. He's fighting snakes with eight hands right now. How in the world can he take on anything else? He simply cannot. But there are hundreds here who are not so involved and who could help. And I plead with you to help us. There are men in this congregation who preach five and six times a week when school is going on. They've got their hands full. But nevertheless, they can help too. But what about the ones who are not involved? Surely they can find fulfillment and happiness and be a blessing to others in this program. Thirdly, I would urge you, and more will be said about this later, to give some more money. I was at an elders' meeting last Wednesday night. It lasted until after midnight. I didn't know the things lasted so long. You know, I'm sort of a novice. But man alive, at the money we're going to need next year to fulfill the programs we hope to be able to, to do. So I'd urge you to give more. I felt uh, this thing a little myself and increased my contribution this morning. And then I urge you in the fourth place to look at people differently. Instead of saying he's black or white or male or female or rich or poor or educated or uneducated, let's begin to look at people as individuals. Created in the image of God with never-dying souls that one day will bask in the sunlight of God's love forever or burn in the fires of hell. Yesterday I was talking to Cliff Gaines. We live next door to one another. I asked him, is it sinful to take off six weeks in the summer? He kind of grinned a little and responded. I said, you know, I try to take off about six weeks in the summer just to relax and loaf and kind of recuperate. But I was about half serious. Is it sinful to take off six weeks in the summer? There's so much to be done and so little time in which to get it done. The elders' meeting last Wednesday night we were discussing some program. I don't remember what it was. And someone spoke up and said, Well, man, that's going to take all kinds of time. And Brother George Benson, the oldest man in the room, spoke up and said something to this effect. That's all we have is time. That's all we have is time. And I've heard him quote, I think, Ben Franklin many a time when he said that time is the stuff of which life is made. And really, that's all we have is time. And so we're really just going to have to determine how we're going to use our time, whether we're going to use it to do good or whether we're going to squander it on ourselves. 
And if we want happiness and fulfillment and meaning, and if we want to be a blessing to others, obviously it's going to have to be used in service to other people. Jesus said at John 9, 4, I must work the works of Him that sent me while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. G.H. Sinley died yesterday. I can hardly believe that. He wasn't much older than I am. But he's gone. In his 50s, he's dead. And there's not a whole lot of time left for some of us. And we're going to get the job done. We're going to have to work while it's day. For the night comes when no man can work. I urge you to listen to these three points that I gave for motivation. To save the country from destruction because of the phenomenon known as the population explosion and to save our own souls. Let's find a place where we can fit in evangelism. Let's try to reach out and touch the lives of others. And I submit to you, my brethren and friends, that if you and I can do that, if we can influence others for the Lord, in the eyes of God Almighty, we'll be a whole lot greater than the politicians and the military men who get the front pages on our newspapers. We will have rendered a greater blessing and a greater benefit to humanity in that way than in any other way that I know about. If you this morning are a careless brother or sister and you need to come home, get all straightened out, start all over again, ready now to go to work for Christ, I hope you'll respond to the invitation for rededication and restoration and renewal. And if this morning you're not a child of God, I hope you'll turn to this Lord Jesus Christ who suffered, bled, and died for you and me and was raised for our justification. Submit to His will through repentance and baptism. Become a Christian. Get involved in the fight with us for that which is right. If you need to come, won't you do it while we stand and sing?